Thanks, Josh. Hey, it's good to see you guys this morning. I want you to know that we are 10 weeks into the great adventure with only one week left before we take a Christmas break. And I want you all to know how much I admire the fact that you set your alarm every Tuesday morning to be up here for the great adventure of manhood. I mean, uh, you guys have made a sacrifice, and we'll have a great time next semester as well. You, you, you know, one of the most common complaints men have regarding their wives is this. My wife is just too emotional. I mean, uh, my wife is governed by her feelings. And, and most guys... We have an opinion of ourselves. We see ourselves as, well, we're logical, we're rational, we're, we're uh, reasonable beings. And that creates tension. In fact, I, I want to read an expert's opinion of how a man processes his emotions from my friend Dave Barry. As you know, I love Dave Barry, and I think you'll appreciate what he has to say. He says, guys, they know how to handle emotions. If you doubt this, go to any sporting event. I'm writing these words this morning after attending an NBA playoff game between the Miami Heat, and that's my team, and the Atlanta Tweety Birds. Not that I'm biased or anything. The crowd around me was mostly guys in their 40s and older, Husbands, fathers with responsibility. They have demanding South Florida Florida jobs such as stockbroker, doctor, lawyer, narcotics kingpin. You know the type. I'm certain that these guys think of themselves as mature and rational individuals. And I'm certain they believe that they are, as males, more logical than females and less likely to be governed by their feelings. They would tell you that they'd tell you that. Quite frankly, they are a little embarrassed by the way their wives tend to cry during sad parts of romantic movies because, after all, they would say, it's just a movie. There's no reason to get emotional about all that. That's what these guys tell you, but if you were to ask them, that's what these guys tell you. But you shouldn't ask them during a playoff basketball game because they are very busy reacting rationally and logically to the events on the court. You suck, Sicily! You suck, they informed the Miami Heat Center, Ronnie Sicily. You suck, they add, as a way of clarification. Sicily has just missed two free throws with less than two minutes to go, and the middle-aged guys hate him. They hate his guts. They are on their feet. Their bodies are vibrating with fury. Their faces dark red and contorted with rage. Their muscle cords standing out of their necks. They've never, ever hated anyone, including Hitler, as much as they hate Ronnie Sicily at this particular moment. Now, now Hitler was a bad person. Yes, I agree. But he didn't miss an important free throw in a playoff game. These men want to kill Ronnie Sicily. They want to have him dismembered. 
They want to have his eyeballs eaten by rats there on center court. They want him to, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Ronnie just grabbed the offensive rebound. He's put the ball back up. He's going, he's score, score, yeah, way to go, Ronnie. Yeah, high five my man, Ronnie. These middle-aged guys love Ronnie Sicily. They want to kiss him on the mouth. They want to fly in uh, in a medical. They want to fly to a medical clinic in Sweden and undergo major elective surgery so they can have Ronnie's children. They can't believe they are so fortunate as to be on the same planet with this magnificent human being, such as Ronnie Sicily. He's a giant. He's a god. He's wait. He's not guarding his man. His man blew right by him for an easy layup. You suck, Sicily. We hate you, Sicily. You know, sometimes life feels like that, doesn't it? It's got these incredible highs where you you win, uh, you overcome these insurmountable obstacles, and uh, the best of life just flows out of that victory. And then in the next moment, you're overtaken by incredible lows, and you wonder if you'll ever see up again. That's life. Now, last week we talked about highs and lows that uh, men face uh, in life. Now, we really focused in on the lows when I asked you the question, what are the enemies of the great adventure? And remember, I said there are five uh, adventure busters every man must deal with. Now, these adventure busters, they're like oh, bunker buster bombs, the kind they would drop on the Taliban in Afghanistan. I mean, they penetrate to the core of a man's life, no matter how strong you might think he is, and they end up piercing his life to the core and rob him of the great adventure that God meant for him to experience. And last week, remember, we introduced to you the first two. The first one we called the double life. It's the most subtle of them all, I mentioned, And the double life is that insidious drift that separates what a man says from what he does. It's that drift from integrity to duplicity that lowers the quality of his life and the quality of life of everyone who's associated with him. That's the first one. The second one, you remember, was sexual shortcuts. Those quick fixes a man opts for when he loses sight of the real adventure God created him to have with his wife. And he goes for something much less, thinking it's going to give him life, but it ends up destroying his life and compounding his problem. So those are the first two we talked about. I want to give you a third, fourth, and fifth today. Three more adventure busters. Uh, The first is what I see in men more than any other. I'd call it life-draining marriage problems. Life-draining marriage problems. And there are few things that halt the adventure quicker than problems in your marriage. What starts as, well, a life of intimacy ends up collapsing into this titanic conflict of the wills. It becomes this never-ending contest of trying to get the other person to agree to what you want, to do what you want. And I want you to know that that can destroy a marriage quickly and destroy the adventure a man 
wants to have for his life. In fact, every marriage has problems. I want you to know that. To have problems is not unusual. In fact, having problems is probably a sign of health in a marriage as a couple work through those differences over time and learn to to agree in marriage. Every marriage has problems. It's a sign of health, but... Every marriage that has problems can allow those problems to get totally out of control if they're not careful. Suddenly you find yourself in a foxhole. You're drawing battle lines. There's now a war being declared. And over time you discover, well, nobody wins. In fact, everybody ends up a casualty. That's the problem with life-draining marriage problems, and as a result, the adventure begins to fade into a life of conflict. Now, there's a wrong way to address these kind of problems, and I want to hit the wrong way before we talk about the right way, because the wrong way can give you some insight into your life and how you deal with issues that come up. So the wrong way to deal with these problems uh, is quite clear, and probably every man in this room has opted for these wrong ways from time to time. Uh, But it's the first wrong way. No. The first wrong way is withdrawing and seeking to solve the problem alone. In fact, when you look at these wrong ways, Um, Sadly, I have to admit that I am one who has chosen the wrong way over and over and over again, especially in the beginning years of our marriage. Uh, And I discovered something over maybe 10 or 15 years is that it never works. The wrong way really never solves anything. Uh, And the wrong way is something a foolish man decides to give his life to Uh, and it just creates a cycle of failure, one failure after another. In the past, I've been that foolish man. Here's the first wrong way, withdrawing and seeking to solve problems alone. In fact, John Gray in his book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, says that the classic move of a troubled man is to, first of all, retreat to his cave. In other words, uh, he gets alone. He retreats to his cave, he gets alone, and there he broods about his problem, and he looks for a solution. He tries to figure it out himself. And I've been right there. Maybe you have too. I suspect you have. Most men have. Things aren't working well at home, but rather than talking about it, What you end up doing is withdrawing from your wife. You think you can figure it out, but you're not. uh, But in other words, you're going to solve it alone. But I want you to know solving marriage problems alone is a contradiction in terms. You can't solve marriage problems alone. And that's because there are two people in a marriage. It requires two people to be involved in coming up with a solution. Marriage problems demand interaction, two people interacting with one another, not isolation. Isolation, gentlemen, kills. It destroys. It exacerbates the problem. In fact, it it adds fuel to the issue and intensity. Uh, No matter what you come out of your cave with, 
guaranteed it's going to be one-sided. And it's going to be your side primarily. And all it does with going into your cave trying to solve it alone is it compounds the problem. In fact, I want you to see the way Solomon talks about it. He gives wisdom on this issue. He says, there is a way that seems right to man. Now, that is a man going into his cave. That's a man saying, I'm going to solve this by myself. I'm going to figure this out. I'm not going to talk to my wife about it. I need to get my arms around it. But its end is the way of death. You can never solve your marriage problems alone. You can only solve them together. And that phrase should haunt you your entire married life. We've got to do this together. So that's the first wrong way. Second wrong way to address issues is by using intimidation to force your wife to adjust to your expectations. You could call that the Neanderthal approach to problems. I mean, it's just a fact of life as men. We're bigger. We're stronger. And it's easy for us to use that advantage subtly or overtly and intimidate our wives. So you can intimidate your wife to give in, to agree with you, uh, to join what you think is your side of the argument. And maybe she does. Maybe she does because she's just naturally a peacemaker. She wants to calm things down. But maybe she does because she's afraid. And you get what you want, but you really don't like what you got. Because, well, you lose what you wanted most in that relationship. And that's the respect of your wife. You see it in her face. You see it in her posture. She's losing respect for you. And and do you know what that does in a man's life? It causes him to draw the battle lines a little closer and a little tighter because you got what you thought you wanted. You won the argument, but you lost at the same time because she's losing respect for you. So you dig the trench a little deeper. You you try to get your way. You try to emphasize why your way is the best way, but you lost what you needed most from her at that time. You got what you want, but you lost her respect, and you can feel it in your heart. And uh, it's not the adventure at all. What it ends up being for men is a hollow victory. You got what you want, but you didn't like what you got. In fact, Peter understood the importance of this. He said this in 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to your wife. And then he adds this phrase, as to the weaker vessel. So men can intimidate women. You can intimidate your wife because she's just weaker physically than you. But every time you use that club, you lose. And I'm here to tell you, every time I stood up to Patty and I tried to intimidate her to agree with me, I thought I won, but it just was a matter of time before I realized I thought I won, but I lost. I lost because I lost what I needed most, and that was her respect. So neither strategy I've given you, withdrawing or intimidating, ever works. Both are like putting gas on a fire. It just makes things worse. It creates life-draining marriage problems as a result. Now, third, uh, the result is a growing frustration and anger that in times closes off the heart 
and a major part of the adventure. That's why the Bible warns all husbands with these words, husbands love your wives, and then adds this phrase that's common to all men. It says, do not be embittered against them. So here's what you got. You've got a problem. So you decide to go in your cave and see if you could solve it. You try to solve it, but you discover that doesn't work. So you then, now you try to use the club. You intimidate. And maybe you're successful in your intimidation. You got her to agree with you, but you discover on the flip side that you got what you want, but you didn't like what you got. So then you opt for a third option, and uh, that is you do nothing. You just go passive. And when you do, your heart begins to drift from your wife, and her heart begins to drift further away from you. And what you've chosen is not going to give you the great adventure. You've got two people who are not experiencing the intimacy and the closeness God created for a man to experience an adventure with a woman, and it ends up circumventing the adventure across the board that you want to experience in your life. It just doesn't work. So, here's the question, what do you do? Well, I think the answers are kind of obvious. It just takes some courage to implement them. There's a right way to address issues like this. So I want to give you five proven ways, five guarantees that will breathe life into life-draining marriage problems. Guaranteed. First, keep learning and growing. The more you know about your wife, the more you know about marriage, the more information you gather, the more enlightened and skilled you become, the better you'll become in dealing with her and understanding her and solving the marriage problems between you. Now, that just makes logical sense, doesn't it? I think every man in this room would agree with that. But here's the question. When was the last time you read a book on marriage? When was the last time you looked your wife in the eye and said, Honey, let's go to a marriage seminar. That's where the rubber meets the road. You know what most guys do? They just guess at marriage. They guess at it. In fact, I want you to imagine you got a new job. You showed up your first day. You, you talked to your boss. He took you to your desk. He said, Here's your desk. Go ahead and get started. So you say, So what do you want me to do? He says, I want you to guess at this job. Just guess at it. You think you're going to be successful? You think he's going to be successful? Will that work? Absolutely not. And yet in marriage, that's exactly what men tend to do. But guessing, gentlemen, never works. Guessing wounds. And sadly, it wounds the person in your life you care most about, your wife. And if you guess and guess long enough, then you've got to walk the path of hard rebuilding of your marriage relationship and it's because you guessed. So, let me ask you this. Do you know your wife's top needs? I mean, if you knew her top needs, then you wouldn't have to guess about them. In fact, you could implement a strategy to meet those needs, and you'd no longer be guessing. So what I want to do is give you your wife's top six needs. This is worth its weight in gold. It's simple, guys. But it'll pay huge dividends to you if you understand this. Remember, she's not wired the way you are. She's wired differently, so her needs are different. Here's the first. Significance. One of the top needs a woman has is to know she's valued. 
valued by the man she loves. If you want to bring a smile to your wife's face, go in this evening when you get home, find her, draw her close, look her in the eye, and say, Honey, I just want you to know how much I love you. And I want you to know you're a treasure. I mean, I was thinking about you today, and you're a gift from God. I wouldn't be the man I am if it hadn't been for you. It's as simple as that. Simple. And you're building into her life. You're breathing life into her soul if you do the, what, that. And by the way, that, that's why the whole women's movement began. The women's movement began out of a need. Women crying, am I important? Am I valuable? And men should have been crying back to them. Yes, you're extremely important. Absolutely. That's the first major need. Second one is affection. Affection. Now, let me translate that. I didn't say sex. I said affection. Most men translate the word affection into the word sex. But affection is putting your arms around her. Grabbing her hand. Touching her in non-sexual ways. That will mean the world to her. Third, conversation. By conversation, I mean opening up about your life and sharing with her what's going on in your day and drawing her out with questions about her day, engaging in conversations. Go out on a date where you can talk with one another. And if you've got smaller kids, that's a lifeline. Your wife may not have much adult conversation uh, at home. She's got three-year-olds, five-year-olds, ten-year-olds at home. But if once a week she knows she can download to you on a date, then she can kind of hold her breath until that comes, and then you can have a conversation, and you can listen and draw her out. Fourth, openness and honesty. If you want your wife to respond to you, she's got to know you can be trusted, and that means what you tell her is always accurate and it's always truthful. It takes one lie to make you a liar. You've got to always be accurate and you've got to be truthful. Fifth, security. She wants to know she's being taken care of and security is critical to the heart of a woman and her feelings of well-being in the relationship she has with her man. And it would be an incredible, powerful thing that one evening, another evening this week, you get home and you walk up to her you hug her close and you say, I want you to know, honey, I'm committed to you for a lifetime. No matter what. I just want you to know that. I felt like God wanted me to tell you that. You're breathing life into her soul when you say that. I'll never leave you. Sixth, family commitment. She needs to know that you love what she loves in the home and with the kids. That's where she may be spending most of her time. Now listen, if a guy says, you know, every day I'm going to meet one of these needs, guaranteed, every day meet one of these needs, here's what I can guarantee you if you do that. In 95% of the cases, you'll eliminate life-draining marriage problems. But you'll also gain an exhilarating sexual relationship with your wife. That's kind of like bonus on top of the thing. So you eliminate those life-draining marriage problems, but you get a huge gain as well. And do you know why? 
the reason why is because when you meet her needs, when she knows that you are focused on her, it frees her up to abandon herself to you. And she gets to respond to you as God created a woman to respond. So you need to keep learning and growing. That's critical. But second, you need to understand her even if you don't agree with her. Now that may sound confusing on the surface, but let me explain it. Uh, Here's a great question to ask your wife in a disagreement. Sweetie, tell me why you feel the way you do about that. And you listen. And as you listen, you take notes. You ask clarifying questions. Your goal is to figure out why she feels that way. And then in a cooler moment, because maybe you're having an argument, so in the middle of the argument, you interrupt it and says, well, honey, tell me why you feel the way about that. And you take those notes. Then in a cooler moment, you break those notes out and you read them through and you ask yourself, does that make sense? So that you're able to see it logically and you're learning to see things from her viewpoint. I mean, Peter talked about that extensively in 1 Peter 3, 7, where he says, Husbands, likewise, live with them with understanding, giving honor to your wife as a weaker vessel and being heirs together of the grace of life. In other words, gentlemen, your job over a lifetime is to interview your wife so you can understand her. Now, I've been doing that for 40 years. I still don't understand all that's there by any means. And I'm still confused, but I'm learning. Uh, and as you learn, you'll be able to anticipate what to say that, and how to respond to issues uh, as she brings them up in such a way that it meets her needs. When you listen, when you ask her why she feels the way she does, what you're doing is you're inviting her to the round table. Not for a lecture from you, but for a discussion. And when you do that, over time, you honor her as a co-heir of the grace of life. That's what Peter's talking about there. Third, be willing to say, I'm sorry for my sorry behavior, regardless of how she responds. I mean, one of the greatest diffusers of marriage tension is being willing to analyze your behavior and admit you were wrong. I'm sorry, sweetie, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? It's a great diffuser of tension. In fact, I remember years ago having a spat with Patty, and it got rather heated. And I remember being mad and taking off my shirt and buttoning it. I mean, I was thinking I'm changing clothes, and I got it off, and I just got angry. I took the shirt, and I started hitting the door jam with it, just like that. And the buttons went flying off of it, went flying across the room. It was really intimidating. And I realized I've got to cool down. So, I mean, I went out for a walk to cool down. And as I cooled down, uh, I realized how inappropriate that was. I thought I was making a real important point. But it was inappropriate, and it treated her with little or no respect. And I knew I'd wounded her in that. I'd scared her. And I needed to go make things right and seek forgiveness. But, you know, that's hard for a man. So I remember going back to the house and 
just kind of hovering around Patty like a plane trying to land at DFW, you know, hoping I could find a moment just to kind of go, hey, I'm, I'm sorry about all that. And, and finally, I mean, I thought I had that moment. I kind of passed her by, and I said, sweetie, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about all that. And I just kept walking. And she said, what did you say? I said, oh, I, I'm sorry about all that. Really, I am. Can you say that clear? I can't hear you. And she made me look her in the eye and say, I am sorry, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And bang, in that moment, it was almost magical. The tension in the relationship disappeared, and she offered to sew the buttons back on my sorry shirt. I couldn't believe it. That's how powerful those words are in a marriage relationship. Fourth, seek outside help sooner rather than later when you can't find a satisfying resolve for your problems. And you need to circle that word sooner. It's not a sign of weakness to go outside the marriage for help. In fact, it's a sign of wisdom to go outside the marriage for help. No man was supposed to understand all the ins and outs of marriage. Who said that you were supposed to know everything about marriage? I mean... I've been married 40 years, and I'm still trying to figure it out. And I still fall into the same traps I've fallen in before. I don't fall in them as often, but I just I succumb to those things. So it may behoove you to seek outside help so they can help you figure out how to live with a woman over a lifetime. Now, Patty and I did that early in our marriage. I, don't, I mentioned to some of you, maybe in here in the past, that when we first got married, I mean, things were not good. We even considered divorce. But we decided that was not an attractive option. So we decided to take the faith-saving way out. We prayed for one another's death. About 15, minutes, 15 years after we were married, after we'd solved a lot of these problems, and we were talking about that at, at going out for dinner. And she said, yeah, I used to pray for your death. And I said, no, really, I used to pray for yours. And we laugh about it now. Uh, but at that moment, we went and sought help, and we went through three and a half years of counseling. I'm telling you, it's the best money I ever spent, spent the best investment I ever made. And that leads to number five. Uh, it's a wise man who will keep his conflict accounts short. In other words, don't let conflict build up. If you do, you know what happens. You become embittered to one another. Keep short accounts. And the older you get, hopefully the wiser you get in your marriage, you learn how to resolve conflict easily. You find compromise a whole lot quicker, and it creates this fertile soil for the marriage to begin to grow. And you know what blossoms out of that soil, that fertile soil? It's the fruit of an adventure with a woman. It becomes this fun adventure. So life-draining marriage problems rob you of the great adventure. There's a second adventure buster. I call this life-defining wounds. And I'm going to move through this rather quickly because I cover these and more in detail in the quest for authentic manhood. You've probably heard of PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. It's a common occurrence in soldiers. And PTSD is when trauma of the past continues to plague you in the present. 
You can't escape the past because it keeps plaguing you in the present. The trauma of war creates that in soldiers, and the trauma of family wounds can create that in men. Now, here's what I mean by a wound. You guys who've been through the quest, you've heard this part before, but a wound is an unresolved issue from the past whose lack of closure adversely affects the quality of a man's life now. Rather than pulling you forward into an adventure in the future, it pulls you back by a wound that that you suffered in the past. It doesn't take you to the future in a positive way. It keeps pulling you back to the past. You can't break away from the tentacles of the past that reach forward and grab you in the present. That's a wound. And there are three major wounds in a man's life I want to give you. The first is probably pretty obvious to you. It's the father wound. The father wound. In fact, I want you to listen to an excerpt from... Uh, John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart, where he talks about the father wound by just describing a number of men he's known through his counseling uh, career. He, He begins this way. There's a young boy named Charles who loved to play the piano, but his father and brother were jocks. One day they came back from the gym to find him at the keyboard, and who knows what else had built up in years of scorn and contempt in his father's soul, but his son received both barrels from his dad. You're such a faggot, his dad said. And then John talks about himself. He said, my father, in many ways, was a good man. He introduced me to the West. He taught me to fish and to camp. I still remember the fried egg sandwiches that he would make for us for dinner. But like so many men of his era, my father had never faced the issue of his own wounds, and he fell to drinking when his life began to take a downhill turn. I was about 11 or 12 at a time, a very crucial age in the masculine journey, uh, the age when the question is really beginning to surface in a young man's life. At that very moment, when I was desperately wondering what it meant to be a man and do I have what it takes, my father checked out. He was silent. He had a workshop out back attached to a garage, and he would spend hours out there alone, reading, doing crosswood puzzles, drinking, and he created a major wound in my soul. Another, my friend Alex's father died when he was four years old. The sun, the sun in his universe set never to rise again. How is a little boy to understand that? Every afternoon, Alex would stand by the front window waiting for his father to come home. This went on for almost a year. Then another, Stuart's dad uh, just up and left. His mother was a troubled woman who was unable to raise him. So he was sent to his aunt and uncles to live. Divorce or abandonment is a wound that lingers because the boy or the girl believes if they had done things differently, dad would have stayed. 
Some fathers give a wound merely by their silence. They are present, yet they're absent to their sons, and that silence in their lives is deafening. Another situation. In the case of silence, passive or absent fathers, the question goes unanswered. Do I have what it takes? Am I a man, Daddy? Their silence is the answer. I don't know. I doubt it. You'll have to find out for yourself. Probably not. Remember Alex, he goes on, who stood at the door waiting for his dad who would never return? You wouldn't in a million years have guessed that you you never in a million years have guessed what his story turned out to be if you had known him in college. He was a man's man, an incredible football player, a hard-drinking, hard-living man every guy looked up to. He drove a truck, chewed tobacco, loved the outdoors. He used to eat glass. I'm serious. It was a sort of frat party trick he took on as the ultimate display of dangerous strength. He had literally... He would literally take a bite out of a glass, chew it up slowly, and swallow it. When he worked as a bouncer for a tough bar, it it made a pretty impressive show to get the roughnecks in line, but that's all it was, just show. Charles, the the artistic boy that played the piano whose father called him a faggot, what do you think happened there? Well, he never played the piano again after that day. Years later, as a man in his late 20s, he doesn't know what to do with his life. He has no passion, can't find a career to love, and so he can't commit to a woman he loves, can't marry her because he's so uncertain about himself. But, of course, his heart was taken out way back then by his dad, Stuart whose father abandoned him, became a man without emotion. His favorite character as a boy was Spock, the alien in Star Trek, who lived solely from his mind. Stewart is now a scientist, and his wife is extremely lonely. Most men have wounds like that. And those wounds can hold a man back from the great adventure God has for him. In fact, men suffer a father wound uh, because dad doesn't leave behind a blessing for that son. Or or dad doesn't support that son. Or he never affirmed that son growing up. Uh, Another way to put it is he never knighted that son into manhood and told him he was a man. Instead, uh, dad does just the opposite. Dad shamed me. Or, Or dad put me down. Or dad abandoned me. Our dad let me down. Our dad angered me. Dad failed me. Dad suffocated me with his control. Dad never gave me his approval. I was never good enough in his eyes. He left me with nothing. I didn't live up to expectations. Now, gentlemen, that's the father wound. Can you feel the anger? But you know that anger is a cover-up. It's a cover-up for the hurt that lies beneath the surface, left unaddressed. It leaks poison into a man's life that unleashes problems that last for a lifetime. 
So that's the father wound. Secondly, there's the overbonded to mother wound. Now, I only mentioned this briefly. It's, it's a wound caused by a man who love—I mean, a woman who loves her son too much. And you think, well, how could that be? Loving her son too much—that can't be bad. Well, it's because out of her heart to protect him, her desire to care for him, well, she takes it too far. And many times what she's done is stepped into a vacuum left by an absent dad, a passive dad who's not engaged with her son's life. And she steps in too far, and her son never really learns to break free from her orbit as he becomes an adult. And never breaks free from her control. So as adult, he looks to mom uh, for insight, for input. And he begins looking to other women for that insight and input. To take care of him at times. To tell him he's okay. But when he does, he really hates it in his heart. He doesn't want to be dependent upon women like that. And that uh, this man was never called into manhood growing up. So he's just kind of fallen under the care of his mother because his dad never engaged him and called him forward. And he finds himself as an adult now in this netherworld where he seeks women for energy and he looks for a woman to take care of him. So he probably marries a dominant woman who likes to tell him what to do and he He feels like he needs that, but at the same time, he doesn't want that. Or he goes in the opposite direction. They go one of two ways. He he looks for a woman to marry to take care of him, or he goes the opposite direction. He rebels against a woman. He becomes chauvinistic. He basically says to himself, I'm never going to let a woman control me again like my mom did. That's the overbonded to mother wound, and it can devastate a man in his relationship with his wife. Third uh, kind of wound is their trauma wounds. These are wounds that are events in the past that keep on marking the way you live life in the present. I mean, men tragically encounter these wounds, and sadly, most men try to solve them themselves. They try to go into their cave and solve them, but these wounds cannot be solved in isolation. The first is the abuse wound. This is a guy who grew up in a family where he was abused physically or abused verbally by his parents, but he never reconciled it with them. He's never confronted them on the issue. And so he moves into his adult life feeling the sense of injustice throughout his life. And that feeling of injustice just follows him decade after decade, um, and it's sad. The second is a reality called the rape wound. This is a man in his early years who ends up being raped by a relative, a family member, a family friend, whoever it might be, but he's never told anybody about it. He's never talked about it with anybody, and that event casts this long shadow over his entire life that affects everything in his life, and it haunts him to his dying day. It's like carrying around a canister of radioactive material that he doesn't know what to do with. You can't solve that wound by yourself. Third, there's the divorce wound. Maybe dad walked out on you uh, at a time you needed him most when you were a young man, or mom uh, left the family, or maybe you suffered a divorce 
Uh, it could be you divorced your wife or your wife divorced you. And in signing those papers, you thought that's going to make the whole thing go away. But the divorce trauma never goes away because it keeps being brought up. It's brought up through the relationship with your children, the relationship with your ex, uh, family, friends, relatives in the family, people who knew you as a family through other family members. It's never over. And it's a fool who thinks you can just sweep this under the rug and it'll just take care of itself. You need help with this wound. Rather than pressing it down, hoping it'll go away, you can't solve this wound by itself. Suicide of a parent. In fact, I know a man who found his dad's body out in the woods with his head half blown off. That, that event has affected his entire life his marriage, his relationship with his kids. That's a huge wound to encounter. And then death of a parent. That can cause a young man, if it happens when he's young and at home, to feel cheated by God. And he ends up at times being mad at the world. Or there's a spiritual perspective I see in guys who um, grow up under an awful church experience. An awful church experience growing up. Maybe it was an overly strict church that was oppressive. Or, or maybe it's an overly boring church that you hated going to, but your parents made you go three times a week. And while there, you just saw the hypocrisy that what was spoken up front was never lived out in the people who sat in the pews, and you didn't like uh, that dissidence. And so you decided you'll never get involved in a church again. Or if you do, you're going to be very careful about your involvement. Somehow that experience was like a knife that cut out part of your spiritual life. So um, you look at every uh, spiritual experience, whether it's yours or others, with kind of a jaundiced eye. And that can have an awful impact. It comes from the past and impacts the present. So what do you do about these wounds? Well, let me give you a few remedies. First is you got to identify the wound. If you have a life-defining wound, you got to identify it consciously by naming it. You say, yeah, I, I was wounded when my dad died in that car accident when I was 10. Or I was wounded by my parents' divorce. Because you were. You can't say, it didn't matter to me. He wasn't around anyway. Now, you were wounded, so you got to name it. Half the battle is naming it. Naming it brings that wound to the surface. Uh, secondly, you need to seek help and get a, a plan for healing. Now, when a soldier is wounded on the battlefield, what's usually the first thing out of his mouth? Medic! Medic! He yells for help. I mean, it's obvious. He needs help. And what's true in war is true with these emotional trauma wounds. If you know you're injured, well, you need to identify it first. But you need to realize you can't solve this by yourself. You need help. So you cry for help. You find a pastor or a counselor or a professional who can give you feedback. And it's going to require some hard steps. It's going to require some painful steps, gentlemen, but they're all necessary steps. The kind of steps I had to take as I went through counseling for three and a half years and some of the wounds I um, suffered growing up. 
but they're necessary steps in order to resolve it and heal it. Which leads to number three, courageously address your wounds head on. In fact, I want you to hear from a guy who addressed the father wound so that you can know wounds like this, they don't have to pull you down. That you can take negatives and actually turn them into positives. Listen to what this young man said. He wrote this letter. He said, I want to drop you a note to let you know that I took a significant step forward in the great adventure last Sunday afternoon. I had lunch with my dad. My home life growing up was was volatile, to say the least. My dad was an angry man, and my parents split for good when I was in the sixth grade. My, nev- my dad never had a close relationship with his father, and he longed to have one with me, but sadly, his anger always drove me away. For the last several months, if not years, I felt a strong disconnect with him, and have longed to see that wound of my past resolved. Well, this conversation last Sunday was truly years in the making. A good friend once told me that if I ever had a conversation with my dad and I initiated the process of healing that wound, my dad would see a man across the table and would want to respond, and that's exactly what happened. I shared the entire hardwiring of a man diagram that we went through in session four with my dad and asked him if he would be willing to begin a dialogue with me dialogue with me over the next few months and years to deal with the wounds of the past. He reached his hand across the table and table and put it on top of mine and said yes. Now my dad's not a crying man. So his nonverbal gesture was a powerful signal of his heart being touched and his equally strong desire to reconnect. He had been waiting a long time for me to be ready to make our relationship right and all that both of us, uh, that both he and I had hoped it would be. We, We found a lot of common ground together that day and he initiated the thought of forgiveness between us. He shared with me a number of things that I didn't know about our family history and were real insights into my story and our family cycle of pain and dysfunction. I drove away from there with a smile and a sense of what had just happened. Wow. I knew I had taken the first step in clearing up the traffic on the radar screen of my daily life pursuits in turning a negative charge into a positive one, and boy, did it feel good. I couldn't help but sense the prayers of faithful friends coming to fruition. I couldn't help but share the story with my sister and a few close friends who have tracked me down through the years. As I'm able to identify the issues that I need to resolve with my dad, I now know that he's willing to work them through, and that's so liberating. For the first time, I feel that I can move off the treadmill of pain and move toward the man God intends me to be. Uh, Thanks for the encouragement. I look forward to finishing the great adventure, A Changed Man. Well, that's an actual letter received after someone went through this material. Now, that is a man who's saying, I'm not going to let the wounds of the past keep me from moving forward in the future. I'm going to face them head on 
and I'm going to resolve those negatives and turn them into positives. And then uh, lastly, I want to mention uh, that uh, a bunker buster bomb against your adventure is a life is life paralyzing addictions. Life paralyzing addictions. By addictions, I mean behaviors that we think we can control, but we can't. We gloss over them. We live in denial. People ask us to buy it, and we say, it's okay. It's all right. I can quit any time. I'm in control of this, but it's a lie. Here's what Jesus said about them. He says, be careful, or your heart will be weighed down with indulgent excesses, drunkenness, and anxieties in life. In other words, Jesus likens these addictions to the weights I talked about last week that ancient athletes would strap to their legs in training. But unlike those athletes, a man with addictions ends up competing with the weights on. He never is free from them. He never takes them off. So your legs feel heavier and heavier as you watch your friends pass you by and move through life successfully. You never break three, you never break free, but you don't know what to do about them. So I want to give you five addictions men face, and my guess is you already know what they are, because you may face most of them, or many of them. Now these major addictions swallow up the adventure. The first is the sexual addiction. And I just want to say, beware of the internet. Recognize your inherent weaknesses. Rather than sitting there night after night looking at that, that um, computer screen going, I can't, I can't. Not again, not tonight. I'm not going to do it tonight. You need to address that addiction. Take preventive action. Bring whatever equipment you need into your home in order to uh, filter that stuff out. So one of the first things you need to do is tell a friend. And then secondly, you need to go on the Internet to covenanteyes.com and download this software that will help filter all that stuff out. Purchase it. And if you find yourself making incessant wrong choices, then, gentlemen, you've got an addiction. That's an addiction. Something you don't want to do, but you keep going back to doing it. The second addiction is a common one, drug addiction. Third is alcohol addiction. Fourth, did you know anger can be an addiction? Many men... Uh, live with rage and they have no idea why they're so angry. The slightest thing sets them off. So something little happens and you end up responding with an explosion. And if you've got this addiction, your wife has told you about it. She's scared of you. You can see it in her eyes. And when you explode, the shrapnel ends up hitting everybody around you. People you're not even angry at. But they see it. Fifth is a gambling addiction, and with the web, this thing is um, increasing exponentially. So what can you do with these addictions? Well, number one, get honest, and what I mean by that is that first bullet. Are others saying you have a problem? But you argue against them and say, I don't. If others say you have a problem, then take it by faith. You've got a problem. They see more clearly than you do. You've got a blind spot, and they don't call them blind spots because you can see clearly. So you've got an addiction. And that's why I want you to the second bullet. If they say you do, 
then there's no more, no more debate. You need to admit, I do, regardless of how you feel about it. And then second, you need to get real. And what I mean by get real is that first bullet, you can't beat this addiction by yourself. In other words, you can't go into your cave and figure it out. That's what we want to do. That's our, our first option, but you can't do that. Second bullet says you need a team around you. And the quicker you get there, the quicker you get on top of this addiction. And the quicker you get on with life. So what I mean by team is, well, you need God. You need counseling. You probably need family members. You need a sponsor. You probably need a mentor of some sort. You may need to check into AA or Celebrate Recovery. So that will help put the team around you. I've had guys go through this and find out they've joined recovery groups. It could be sexual recovery, alcoholic recovery, whatever it is. They saw the need for the team around them. So if you got an addiction and you're not dealing with it, you need to know what you're playing with is one of those 15,000-pound bunker buster bombs that's going to explode. You're going to set it off, and it's going to kill the adventure for you. So here's a final word. I want to give you two statements of encouragement. Everyone who beats a buster, one of these adventure busters, becomes a hero and a life giver. Every time you get on top of, say, marriage problems or deal with the father wound, it moves you to a position to become a life giver where you begin to see and maybe help and influence other guys who have that wound. And then secondly, I want you to know that part of God's adventure for every man is turning negatives into positives, no matter what those negatives are, no matter what you find yourself addicted to or wounded by are involved in. Remember the wiring diagram we showed there on the, in the fourth session and we talked about uh, the positives and the negatives of the past and the impact? I want you to know I stand before you today as a man who's taken the negatives of my past growing up with a passive, absent dad and a controlling mom and turned them into positives. Three and a half years of counseling facing those issues and working them through and having to go talk to my mom and dad back and forth. But I want you to know that the fruit of dealing with those addictions is before you right now. It's this. It's the guys that I've had the opportunity to talk to, impact, and infect, and the thousands of guys that have gone through um, our band of brothers over the years, whether here or other churches. And that's a positive outcome of a negative impact. So guys... I want to see you next week. Please don't skip next week because I want to introduce you to a figure, a a figure who did it right. And it's not who you think it is. But I can't wait to tell you about this biblical figure. So we'll see you next week. And you can go online. Don't forget that little card. Go online and begin checking out that assessment. It will cost you $35, but it's well worth the price, guys. Thanks. Sorry I went a little long. These sessions never get shorter.